and welcome. You're listening to the Genesis Podcast, the official podcast of the Genesis Community Church in Upland, California. It is our goal to inspire one another to change the world by effectively living in the way of Jesus. Check out our website, thegenesisstory.com. There, you can learn more about us, where and when we meet, ways to invest and support, but most importantly, how to get connected. Thank you for spending time with us today. <laughs> Good morning to all you who are watching. A little inside humor going on here. Yeah. Uh, welcome. Glad you guys are here joining us uh, either online or here in person. Um, one of the things that I fail to do often is say thank you to all of you who are supporting Genesis financially. I Every now and then I'll listen to myself because um, I think I should, you know, and not because like, oh, I really like what I have to say. Um, it's like, I've heard that. Um, but it, it, then I'm reminded of, oh, you didn't mention all the people who support. You didn't ask, you know, uh, for people to support. And I'm just not good at that, but it is so important. And so once again, thank you, thank you, thank you for all of you who take of what comes in and gives to us. I know some of you actually drop it off here in the mail. Through the mail slot, we get envelopes with people who aren't even attending for various reasons, but still give. And there are so many people who listen or watch and give who don't attend, and you are a part of our community. We would love to see you here, but we are thankful for you, and I just wanted to take the time and say thank you for your support and generosity. I hope you guys are having a good Labor Day weekend. It's Labor Day? Memorial Day? Labor Day. I know it's something. Um <laughs> And I know a few people are out because of the long weekend. Hope you guys are having a good and safe time. But let's pause, let's pray before we move any further. Lord, we are grateful again for your goodness. Lord, we are grateful for the generosity of people who give to support what is happening here at Genesis. And Lord, we pray that you would allow us to be good stewards of what comes in. Lord, I pray that we would have vision for a future that is bigger than just the present. May we be inspired by generosity, and may we also be a community that continues to be generous. This morning, Lord, I pray that you would allow what is done here to be effective in some positive way in our lives, that it would begin a transformation process that helps us move to a place that is closer to you, closer to your heart, closer to your kingdom. We desire that your will be done here as it is in heaven, and we are here to see that take place. And we ask that you work this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. A few things more I'd like to just share. One is the memorial service uh, 
for O is this Friday at 5.30 p.m. It's at the Hall of Grace uh, in Rose Hills. If you need the information, we can put it on our socials um, so that you have it. Or if you text me, I can text you the information, give you the address uh, where to meet. Um, But it'd be this Friday, again, 5.30 p.m. We also want to be lifting up uh, Randy's brother-in-law, Joe, passed away, uh, had a stroke. He was recovering from cancer. And also Brian's good friend, Joe, also passed away. Um, And so, you know, it's... uh, Something happens to us when there is a loss of someone in our lives. There is uh, an awareness of how important people are, uh, how important maybe that person was. We are able to remember and reflect on the things that we experienced with that person. We think maybe of the things we would have liked to have experienced, how we wish we were more present. A lot of things happen within us. And and it's something that is more than just uh, how we think and how we feel. Uh, We are connected to one another in ways that are mysterious. And when one member weeps, we all weep because if someone hurts, it hurts us. When someone loses someone, they have lost something of themselves and we grieve that loss. And so we want to be lifting up uh, these families and the loss that is being experienced by so many uh, and including those people who are part of our community that we know in various ways. And so again, be in prayer for Patience Ekator, um, for PJ, for Randy, for Brian, and their family members as they go through this time of grief. And as I share that, I didn't plan on you know these things, but I, I think it's important to segue into how community is supposed to be a safe place, a, a place where we can share our emotion freely without the fear of condemnation, that we can express what we actually think and not think that we are going to be chastised because of it, that we can have an engagement in conversation, but being vulnerable is supposed to be a part of community, at least the community of Christ. And that is why it's so important for what takes place here after I finish talking, when we have the conversation. And it's one of the reasons we don't record it and put it out there is because we don't want to hinder people from being open for people to worry about, well, I don't want everyone to know what I think because what if what I think is off the wall and it's like, it's okay. I say off the wall things all the time. (laughs) Maybe you shouldn't then go online, but... (laughs) There has to be the freedom to be real if we are going to be really a community. It it just has to happen. And there has to be space for that to happen. Of course, we don't have to tell everyone 
what we think or feel, but when we choose to, it should be in an environment that's free from that condemnation or the need to criticize from a moral police that has to put things right. And so I I wanna start with a question, a few questions. Does God see? Does God hear or speak? Do you guys think so? Yes, would you think? But what does that look like? Does God have eyes or ears or a mouth? What we do is we have this anthropomorphic language because it helps us to connect to an understanding that is bigger than our ability to comprehend. And so we say that God hears our prayer, but God doesn't have ears like we do. So what does that mean? Is it sound waves or is there just this understanding that's bigger than our language? And we like to attribute to God things that we experience because we feel that it is part of our connection to the creator. If I'm experiencing these things, if I hear, if I feel a certain way, then I imagine that God would as well. But then there's certain things that, well, we don't wanna put all of our senses onto God, or at least we have a hesitancy to like hate. Well, I don't wanna think that God hates, but what about hating things that are evil, hating things that are, are bad? Or lust, God can't lust. Well, what about lusting for things that are good? And someone has said that all our vices, our virtues gone astray, right? And so all the things that we sense and feel, it's not unreasonable to attribute God as having some of that within who God is just because it's a part of our existence. We assume that it's a part of the creator's intention and design because it's part of who the creator is. Does God laugh? Or does God cry? This morning, I wanna talk about crying. And before I move any further, I want you to pause and think of how me saying that made you feel. When someone says, I want to talk about crying or let's talk about crying, for most of us, there's a kairos moment there. It's a reactive moment because to step into this conversation, I usually find that a defense mechanism goes up. I don't really like to talk about crying. I don't want to get all emotional. I don't want to get all, you know, ooey gooey about things. I don't want to be vulnerable, especially with a group of people who I don't really know that well. You know, crying is something that maybe we don't do often, but it's interesting because it's such a big part of scripture. There's so many Psalms that talk about crying. In Psalm 40, verse one, it says, I waited patiently for the Lord and he turned to me and heard my cry for help. Or Psalm 69, verse three, I am weary from my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. And these Psalms are so desperate. And I love them because I think they connect to us at certain times of our lives. But 
how would we feel if someone talked this way about God regularly? Again, in our setting, if someone just said, you know what, I'm just tired of crying, I'm parched, I'm just searching for God. Our tendency would be, well, well, God's here, brother. We would try and just ease that to make them feel better because it's uncomfortable to be around people who are crying. Psalm 119, verse 47 says, I rise before dawn and cry out for help. I put my hope in your word. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. We know that Jesus wept before raising Lazarus from the dead. And when he went and sat with Martha and Mary, he didn't come there and see them crying and say, hey, it's gonna be okay, watch what I can do. He wept with them. He didn't go to, hey, it's okay, I'm gonna fix this. I'm gonna stop your crying, just stop it, stop it. He joined in with that so much that they said, look how much he loved them how much he loved Lazarus as he was weeping. And so we see there is the participation of Jesus in the morning before there's the trying to fix it. And I think our tendency, my tendency is, I just want to fix it so we can stop the crying as if the crying is a problem. Jesus looked over Jerusalem and cried out, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stone the prophets, how I have longed to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. And so we see Jesus weeping both in a a personal setting and then in a broad setting over a group of people. Reminds me of the first verse in Lamentations. That's a whole book about weeping where it says, how desolate lays a city that was once full of people. And so we can weep over some things that are personal and we can weep over things that are big, injustice, difficulty, tragedy in the world as well as in individual lives. And crying is such a unique thing. We cry when we experience grief, but we can also cry for joy. How can we have the same expression for such diverse senses? It, it, it just makes you wonder if maybe these aren't connected. The extreme joy and the extreme hurt are somehow holding hands in us through our tears, through our expression. People cry for important things like losing a loved one. People cry for circumstantial things, winning a World Cup or a sports event. In fact, you can win the World Cup and one team will be crying because of joy and the other team will be crying because of the pain over that single event. But society has tainted crying. And it's interesting because every one of us cried as children. Children cry. It's an expression they have. When they're hungry, when their diaper's full, if they're not feeling good, 
If they want mom, dad, they, they cry because it's their language. It's a language of communication. When did we stop making it a language of communication? When did we deem it as something that is not appropriate to continue? Children laugh. We encourage laughing. You all laughed when you were kids, just like you all cried when you were kids. But how much more do we laugh now than we cry? And why? It's all those times in the playground where someone was called a crybaby for crying and said, I don't want to be labeled like that. All those times it was being put on you not to do that because it's a sign of weakness where you don't want to be judged because of your vulnerability. And so all these things affect our freedom to express what's going on. Maybe I should still cry when I'm hungry. (laughs) Some of us do. And maybe that's the healthy response, right? Maybe that's, that's how you feel. It's okay. It's an expression. When was the last time you cried? What was it about? What happened that moved you in such a way that you couldn't stop what was in you from coming out. It's interesting that even though something so universally experienced in humanity happens, there is so little research on crying. One of the reasons is because there's no disease connected to crying. So there's no grants being given to research people who cry. Another reason is it's a hard thing to to make happen, right? They put people in a room and they show the beginning of up and they say, okay, let's see who's going to cry, right? Okay, and then the people who don't cry, what's wrong with you, right? What's going on? There's... A lit, there, you have to make these things happen so that you can research them because you can't follow people around and wait for something to happen to make them cry. And so trying to find out why and what's going on is a difficult thing to research. But there's a couple of thoughts regarding crying. One is that when we cry, our body is expelling things that it needs to, to deal with the pressure that's happening within us. They think that there is a difference between crying because you're cutting an onion and crying because you lost somebody you loved. They're both tears, but something different is happening biologically when we cry. And so crying might be a way of healing physically to stopping the stress that takes place. Maybe the reason we are having so many physical ailments is because we are not expelling the things that we need to. Another idea on crying is that it is a social construct, that we we cry because it's our way of opening ourselves up to receive help. See, I can see someone who's sad and think, well, maybe they're sad or maybe they're just thinking, but if I see someone crying, I know something's going on. And it's an invitation to step into that person's life. It's an invitation to be empathetic. I remember years ago, I was watching a TV interview with George H. Bush, the first Bush. And 
the interviewer, this was after he had been president and after I think even his son had been president. It was quite a few years later. Or no, it wasn't. It was after he had been president and when Clinton was still president. And they were talking to him about, you know, not being president and what he was doing. And he had written something. He had written a letter to his daughter. He had a three-year-old daughter who died. And he wrote a letter and he read a little bit of the letter to uh, the lady. And I found it. And it's called, We Need a Girl. It says, we had one once. She'd fight and cry and play and make her way just like the rest. But there was about her a certain softness. She was patient. Her hugs were just a little less wiggly. But she's still with us. We need her, and yet we have her. We can't touch her, and yet we can feel her. We hope she'll stay in our house for a long, long time. And he started tearing up as he was reading this. I mean, just on the verge of crying. And it was a very emotional moment. I thought, wow, this was heavy. And after the interview, the interviewer said, you know, maybe if we would have known this about him, he would have won the election. And at the time I thought, that's stupid, right? I don't want to elect a president just because they can cry. But you know what? Maybe it's not so stupid, Maybe we need someone who is empathetic to the real life situations that we are going through. Maybe I don't need someone who postures themselves to be the strong fixer of everything. Maybe I need someone who can step into the problems that we face, someone who cares more about the human struggles dealing with medical insurance than they care about their donors who supply the money that keeps the things going. Maybe we need a little bit more empathy. Maybe if there was a little bit more crying and seeing what's actually happening, there would be more need to deal with it. Maybe. How important is it in society to have empathy for our leaders to have vulnerability? What if we wanted to help the people around us, both in and outside of the border, because we saw their pain and cared about it. If their tears were an invitation for us to step into their lives and help, how does the detachment of our emotions affect the way we interact with people around us? What happens when we shut down the ability to be vulnerable? I don't want to cry because then I'm vulnerable. I don't want to cry because that's emotional. I don't want to show that emotion. What happens when we start shutting down the ability to show emotion? Bell Hooks in her book, The Will to Change, says the first act of violence that patriarchy demands of men is not violence against women, but violence against the emotional parts of themselves. If I can shut down my ability to feel, it makes it a lot easier for me to hurt others because I do not see or know their pain because I don't want to experience that. And I think the suppressing of our emotions isn't just the result of an unhealthy and abusive society. I think it might be part of the cause. What is crying but 
not only the letting go of our guard, but the ability to take in another person's pain and the opportunity to connect. But it's uncomfortable. And it's hard. There's a beautiful story in Genesis that I think gives us, again, some more insight. I'm going to read through it. A familiar story of Joseph in Genesis 37, starting at verse 23. When Joseph came to his brothers, they saw him. You know the story. He was their favorite of Israel. And so they planned from a distance first to kill him. And then it was decided, let's not kill him. And so in verse 23, he came to his brothers. They stripped off Joseph's robe, the long sleeve robe that he had on. Then they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty without water. They sat down to eat a meal. And when they looked up, there was a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were carrying aromatic gums, balsam, and resin going down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what do we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come on, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay a hand on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. When Midianite traders passed by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the pit and sold him for 20 pieces of silver. That should sound familiar. To the Ishmaelites who took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his fellow brothers and said, the boy is gone. What am I going to do? So that they took Joseph's robes, slaughtered a male goat and dipped the robe in blood. They sent the long-sleeved robe to their father and said, we found this, examine it. Is it not your son's robe or not? His father recognized it. It is my son's robe, he said. A vicious animal has devoured him. Joseph has been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth around his waist and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters tried to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will go down to Sheol to my son's mourning. And his father wept for him. Years later, we know the story. Joseph is raised up in Egypt. So now he's a person of prominence and importance. There's a famine in the land. And so the children of Israel, the same ones who threw Joseph in the pit and sold him into slavery, have to go into Egypt to get food to sustain them through the famine that's going on. And in chapter 43, They have to encounter Joseph who recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And so there is the confronting of the people who sold you into slavery all those years later, the people who did such harm to you. And how is he going to respond? Verse 27 of Genesis 43, he asked if they were well. And he said, how is your elderly father that you told me about? Is he still alive? They answered, Your servant, our father, as well, he is still alive. And they knelt down low and paid homage to him. When they'd come before him already and gave some interaction with him. I had to skip over a lot, okay? So this is their second time coming. And he asked that they would bring their youngest son, his brother, Benjamin. And so, verse 29, when he looked up and he saw his brother, Benjamin, his mother's son, he asked, is this your youngest brother that you told me about? Then they said, may God be gracious to you, my son. Joseph hurried out because he was overcome with emotion for his brother and he was about to weep. 
He went into an inner room and wept there. Then he washed his face, came out, regaining his composure, and he said, serve the meal. He goes on to serve the meal, but gives Benjamin five times as much. And they're like, this is weird. You know, why are they giving him so much? And then he sends them on their way, but he sets them up and he puts something of value in Benjamin's pack so that when they go and find it, they find that he stole something from them and he calls them back and he's going to make Benjamin stay with him and send them off on their way again. And they're just saying, we can't have this. This has already happened to us. And in verse 30 of chapter 44, Judah speaks up trying to defend Benjamin. And Judah says, so if I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, his life is wrapped up with the boy's life. When he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. Then your servants will have brought the gray hairs of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. Your servant became accountable to my father for the boy, saying, if I do not return to you, I will always bear the guilt for sinning against you, my father. Now, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. Let him go back with his brothers, for how can I go back to my father without the boy? I could not bear to see the grief that would overwhelm my father. What does Judah's plea do here? Notice the the importance of grief in this story. The grief that Joseph experiences, the the grief that Israel experiences, losing his son, the grief of bringing the youngest son to Egypt and the possibility of losing him, And Judah's own plea, take me as a slave and let him go. In chapter 45, verse one, Joseph could no longer keep his composure in front of all his attendants. So he called out, send everyone away from me. No one was with him when he revealed his identity to his brothers, but he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and also Pharaoh's household heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But they could not answer him because they were terrified in his presence. Before Joseph forgave, he wept. Grief was such a part of his life and experience that he could empathize with the grief he saw in his brothers and it overwhelmed him. When we shut down our emotion to express, we also shut down our emotion to feel. When we shut down our emotion to feel, we shut down our ability to be compassionate. Joseph was moved with emotion and it allowed him to move with compassion. In Ephesians chapter four, it says, and be kind and compassionate, which means tenderhearted to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Tenderhearted, compassionate, something that takes place when we grieve. Something that I've heard so many times in homes, in living rooms, sitting with people who have lost someone loved, who are bearing the pain of someone who is in the hospital or dying is I would not wish this upon the worst of my enemies. What a thing to say. 
that this is a place where compassion can be born because there is a sorrow here experienced that you would not want anyone else to experience. There is a reality that you are going through that connects you to those who even you would see as the worst of your enemies. That you would have compassion at the time where you are at the most vulnerable. Why? What's going on within us when we cry? And why wouldn't we welcome the ability to connect, to empathize more? I have a problem with the verse in Revelation 21, verse 4, where it says, it's actually quoting Isaiah 25, 8. And it says, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. I'm not sure what to make of this, but maybe it's not about the crying, but about what people do to cause the pain, the grief, and the crying of others. Because that's kind of what Isaiah's point is coming out of exile or being in this place. And I think the author of Revelation is looking back and identifying something similar. Maybe it's not so much that, oh yeah, we don't need to cry anymore, but maybe because we've cried enough, we don't want to cause pain anymore. Maybe there's something that we need to learn in the place of our grief that actually makes us more like Christ makes us more compassionate, more loving, more forgiving, more receptive. Some of the most sacred moments I've had have been with families who are crying. And I can do nothing but cry. I have no words. I can't fix this. I I don't know what to tell you that's going to make you feel better. Nothing will. You've just lost your son. You've just lost your wife. You've just lost something that is going to affect the rest of your life. What can I do but be there? And then people thank me for just being there, for just experiencing their pain with them. I get a thank you. I'm told, oh, it meant so much to me. He was so helpful. I did nothing. I did absolutely nothing but sit and cry and be a witness of their grief. And by witnessing it, I shared in it. And by sharing with it, I brought compassion and empathy. And maybe they felt like God heard their cry because you heard my cry. Maybe they felt like God sees my pain because you sat with me and saw my pain. Maybe we are an extension of God hearing and seeing and speaking in the times of grief. 
Let's pray. Father, there is so much I do not understand about crying, about grief, about pain. But Lord, I know it's important. It's important for us to experience. You said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That we shouldn't be looking to escape the things that come our way that move us to tears, that we should allow them to do a work within us, that we would allow them to purge what needs to be purged out of us, that we would allow that time to connect us to what needs to be connected to in us and in others. And so I pray that in a culture that frowns on crying as weakness, that moves away from whatever makes us uncomfortable to to numb it, to, to medicate it, to entertain our way out of it. May we not be quick to leave the opportunity for that moment to change us and affect us in a way that is healthy and good. Help us to be aware of how we feel when we see someone crying, when we feel like crying, may we be aware of what is happening in us and allow that to happen. May we entertain it with compassionate curiosity and see it as possibly your way of speaking into our souls without words, but with tears. I do ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. May the God of all comfort comfort you in your affliction so that you can comfort those in their affliction. Share in the love of Christ. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful week. You've been listening to the official podcast of Genesis Community Church in Upland, California. If you've been encouraged, found hope, been challenged by what you've heard, we'd like to ask you to help spread the word by sharing our podcast with your friends and family. You can also help support our podcast by visiting us at thegenesisstory.com. It has been our pleasure to have you join us today, and we hope you'll tune in again next week.